Thank you, Frank. Um, <clears throat> you know, I was thinking uh, yesterday uh, when we uh, have a service, uh, the lector, when they finish reading the scripture, uh, always says, the word of the Lord. And we say, thanks be to God. And I was wondering, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the words from Scripture are truly divine words? And if you say yes, the question then I would, I would then ask you is, why? Why do you believe that? Why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? And I share this because I struggle with that for years, even as a Christian. Yeah, I believe that the Bible was experientially true and that it impacted my life. And it had that ring of truth to it. But I had never been, a, been given a good reason to believe. I was just told, believe it. Just because. And that wasn't good enough for me. So I began a search that really started over 30 years ago. And it kind of was an on-again, off-again search. But the book that Frank mentioned really lays out the conclusions that I came to and why. And that's what I'm going to share with you, uh, some of this over the next three weeks. Uh, ten years ago, I had a guy on the board of, the board of directors of our nonprofit organization ask if I would meet with a friend of his. It was a guy that I somewhat knew. He was very well educated, he was agnostic, but he was curious to know more. And he asked if I would meet with him. We have what's called an investigative Bible study. It's a six-week study that we go through with people who are seeking. And so I went through six weeks with this guy, and at the end he said, you know, I, I'm, just, I'm just not there. He had problems with the fact that he had his finger pretty much on the pulse of what's going on out in the world of science. And he felt like science was pointing away from God. Interesting, he's read the manuscript and he would tell you that the chapter in this book on science is the best chapter. But he also had a problem with the Bible. He said that ancient book, what relevance does it really have to us today? And so when we were finished, he says, I would, I would really like to keep meeting. And so for six months, we would meet once or twice a month. And then one day, and I didn't feel like we were getting anywhere. I just felt like this is a guy that likes to come and talk and argue. <laughs> but unbeknownst to me, he was reading the Bible. And he came into my office and said one day, I'm ready to become a Christian. And you could have almost picked me up off the floor. I was so stunned. And I said, well, what, tell me what's happened. Tell me kind of what you're thinking. And he said, well, I've been reading through the Bible. And it is so counterintuitive. I've concluded it could not be written by mere man. It has to be the words of God. And he put his faith in Christ that very day. And today he's a good friend and a very dynamic Christian. But think about it. 
He wasn't ready to embrace Christ or the gospel until he was convinced that the source of the message was true. And for this reason, I believe this is such a crucial issue in our time today. Another great example of this is C.S. Lewis. You know, C.S. Lewis for 31 years was an atheist. And then he became a theist, but it, wasn't, it took two years for him to conclude that Jesus was the Christ. But he said there were two events that really brought him to faith. He said the first was reading G.K. Chesterton's book, Everlasting Man. He said, but the second event had a shattering impact on me. He said, I was sitting in, in, at Oxford. I was uh, sitting in my room one day. And he said, the most militant atheist on the Oxford faculty staff, a guy by the name of T.D. Weldon, sat in Lewis's room chatting with him one night and confided, you know, the historical authenticity of the Gospels is surprisingly sound. And Lewis was stunned by that. Because he says, you know, and it disturbed him. He said, if this staunch atheist thinks the Gospels may be true, then where does that leave me? For he had always believed that the New Testament stories to be myths, not a shred of historical evidence, undergirded it. And he started thinking if they were true, then all other truth would fade into significance. And for the first time in his life, he wondered, is my life headed in the wrong direction? And yet, Weldon's remarks about the historical authenticity of the gospel has haunted him. And so he began to read the New Testament. And unlike us, he was able to read it in the original Greek because of his background. You see, Lewis had spent his life studying ancient documents, ancient manuscripts. And though he had never read the Bible, he considered it to be probably one of the great myths as well, like Norse mythology. And I'm going to read to you what he says. But the Gospels didn't contain the rich, imaginative writings of these talented ancient writers. They appeared to be simple eyewitness accounts of historical events, primarily by Jews who were clearly unfamiliar with the great myths of the pagan world around them. I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the Gospels as myths. They had not the mythological taste. He observes they were different from anything else he had ever read in literature. And then he said this, Now, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend and myth and am quite clear they are not the same sort of thing. They are not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they are clumsy. They don't work. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us for those first 30 years. And no people building up a legend would do this. But this is what he struggled with. And this is what haunted him. If they weren't myths and legends, then what were they? Were they truly eyewitness accounts of historical events that actually took place? And this had an impact on This is what he says eventually led him to Christ. Now, for centuries, Christians 
And the Christian faith has held the belief that the Bible is God's chief means of communicating His thoughts to mankind. It's the primary way He's made Himself known. And Jesus comes along and confirms this. You see, the Bible is considered a book of revelation in that it reveals to mankind spiritual truth that we would otherwise not know. This is why the great Russian author Dostoevsky said, My faith is not built on reason. It's built on revelation. And so as you read the Old and New Testaments, you find poetry, we find divine principles for life, a detailed and well-preserved record of Jewish history, the lives of the prophets, the Psalms, the life of Jesus, and life in the early church. It's clear that this written revelation exists to be taught and passed on to each succeeding generation. And yet, nevertheless, particularly in the modern times which we live in, there always seems to be that question that plagues the skeptical mind. How do we know this book is truly God's written revelation? How can such an ancient document have any relevance to modern life? And this is really what had plagued Lewis for so long. As a young man, as he searched for spiritual truth, he wondered about the relevance of the gospel story to modern life. In fact, he said, honestly, what I could not understand was how the life and death of someone else 2,000 years ago could help us here and now. And these are the same questions that I was asking years ago. Because I realized that I first accepted the Bible as God's written revelation because people that I trusted told me that it was. But I was never given a good reason. Just believe it. In fact, it was like I was told, no, just don't doubt, just believe it. And personally, this can be, this can be a dangerous way to approach life. I was reading about uh, Bernie Madoff and the scandal. Uh, probably the greatest Ponzi scheme ever. And the only reason that Madoff's scheme was possible was because so many people trusted him. And yet most of that trust was based on very little first-hand information. You see, for most of the people who invested with him, said that they primarily did so because of the reputations of those who were long-time investors of Madoff. You see, it's easy to believe something, or really easy to believe anything, because we over-rely and put excess trust in what people tell us. That's why, remember Ronald Reagan, that famous statement, trust but verify. Trust but verify. And I'm of the opinion this is so important because if you believe the Bible is the Word of God and you have good sound reasons for believing it, it will strengthen your faith. It will give you a stronger faith. On the other hand, if you believe the Bible is nothing more than an ancient book of myths and legends, I think it's important that you know why you believe that. That's one of the, the questions I like to ask a skeptic. How did you come to that conclusion? You see, that's what C.S. Lewis thought for years, and then he finally concluded, I was dead wrong. Whenever we have any type of belief, or you put your faith in something... It needs a good foundation. 
It needs to have a good foundation if you're going to have a strong faith. Augustine gave us a great definition of faith. He said, faith is trusting in a reliable source. It's trusting in a reliable source. And you see this thinking in the life of Jean-Paul Sartre, probably the most prominent atheist to live in the 20th century. But what's interesting, and most people don't know, at the end of his life, he began to waver in his belief in atheism. And 30 days before he died, he gave an interview, and these are his words. He says, the world seems ugly, bad, and without hope. He says there, that's the cry of despair of an old man who will die in despair. But that's exactly what I resist. He says, I know that I shall die in hope, but that hope, that faith, he says, needs a foundation. It needs an anchor for it to be real. And what Sartre is arguing is that faith and belief must have a foundation to undergird it. Otherwise, it's blind speculation, which is what we are often accused of as Christians. Think about it in these terms. You can have very little faith in thick ice and it'll hold you up just fine. Or you can have enormous faith in very thin ice and you can drown. It's not so much the amount of faith you can muster that matters up front. It might be like a little mustard seed. But your faith and your, and your hope must be invested in something solid that you can stand on and that you know is true. There's a guy by the name of Miller Burroughs. He served as the department chairman of the Near Eastern Languages and Literature at Yale Graduate School and became one of the world's great authorities on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is his observation on having a strong and solid foundation for your faith. He said, There's a type of Christian faith which seems to be quite common where people accept a Christian belief that is not dependent on reason or evidence. They believe that any type of historical investigation on their part is not necessary. They seem to have no desire to know anything about Jesus as a person of history and seem to be content with such knowledge. Burroughs says, I cannot share this point of view. I am profoundly convinced that the historic revelation of God in Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth must be the cornerstone of any faith that is really Christian. Any historical question about the real Jesus who lived in Palestine 19 centuries ago is therefore fundamentally important to develop a strong faith. And so today in these next two Sundays, I'm going to attempt to answer the question, is the Bible valid? Is it historically reliable? Is it the Word of God? Now, I can't prove that to you as I, as I say could a mathematic formula. But I think I can give you some pretty compelling evidence that will be very helpful to you. Now, I'm going to start by sharing with you something very unique about the Bible that most people really aren't aware of. And I wasn't aware of it until a couple of years ago. Um, when you look at the, uh, at the holy books of the world's religions, what you find is generally they're written by one person. The Koran, for instance, written by one man. Muhammad, the Bhagavad Gita, Hindu, written by apparently one man, the Book of Mormon, written by Joseph Smith, one man, 
But the Bible's not just a single book written by one person. Rather than being a simple book, the Bible is actually a collection of 66 books, which is called the Canon of Scripture. These 66 books contains a variety of genres, history, poetry, prophecy, wisdom, literature, letters, and apocalyptic, just to name a few. These 66 books were written by 40 different authors. These authors came from a variety of backgrounds, shepherds, fishermen, doctors, kings, prophets, and others. And most of these authors never knew one another personally. These 66 books were written over a period of 1,500 years. Yet again, this is another reminder that many of these authors never knew or collaborated with one another in writing these books. These, the 66 books of the Bible were written in three different languages. In the Bible, we have books that were written in the ancient languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, a reflection of the historical and cultural circumstances in which each of these books were written. These 66 books were written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Once again, this is a testament to the varied historical and cultural circumstances of God's people. Sixty-six books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents. And what's more, this collection of books shares a common storyline, the creation, fall, and the redemption of God's people. Author Philip Yancey has made a very similar observation. He says, I find it remarkable that this diverse collection of manuscripts written over a period of a millennium by several dozen authors possess as much unity as it does. To appreciate this feat, imagine a book begun 500 years before Columbus and just now completed. The Bible striking unity is one, of, is one strong sign that God directed its composition. By using a variety of authors and cultural situations, God developed a complete record of what He wants us to know Amazingly, the, the, the parts fit together in such a way that a single story emerges. You know, all the research that I've done, and having read the Bible fairly extensively myself, one thing that really strikes me about it is how, is how it seems to truly have spiritual power behind it. As the Apostle Paul says, the Scriptures didn't come to us in word only, but also in power. The writer of Hebrews says it's like a, a sword that pierces our lives. You see, most significant, it seems to speak into people's lives and has the ability to touch our souls. And not only does it reveal a great deal about the nature of God, but it also seems to reveal a great deal about the human condition. I want to share with you a, a fascinating story of a man. His, his name was Emile Calais or Calier. He was French. He grew up in France. He was very hostile towards any religion as he grew up. He never had even seen a Bible until he got into his 20s. And he served on the front lines in World War I and saw incredible atrocities, death, dead bodies. And what shook him up most was one day he was in a foxhole with his very best friend. And his friend took a bullet in the chest and he died instantly in Calais' arms. And then he was eventually wounded and spent, I think, several months in a hospital. And while in that hospital, he reflected back on the war and what he had witnessed and thoughts that he had as he sat 
guard at night in foxholes. And he said, During the long night watches in the foxhole, I had a strange way been longing, I must say it, however queer it may sound. I was looking for a book that would understand me. But I knew of no such book. He eventually got out of the hospital, was released. And he decided, he decided to strike out on his own. He was going to write his own book that would attempt to explain the human condition. And as the years went by, he wrote and collected things that he heard and read. And one day he was excited because he said, I'm going to, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read this precious anthology that I've put together. I'm sure he thought it was going to be a bestseller. And so one day he went out in the country, he sat under a tree, and he began to read. And as he read it, he was just, he was very disappointed in what he read. He said, and he realized that instead of speaking to his true condition, that these passages only reminded him of the context in which he had chosen them at various times in the past. His life now was so very different from those younger years. Callier realized that the whole undertaking would not work simply because it was of my own making and of my own human understanding. And he went, he walked home dejected and sad. And it's ironic, his wife had just come back from walking their, their, their baby, their child, in, a, in a, some type of carriage. And she said, I had an interesting encounter. I ran into this minister, and he began to share with me and talk to me. And religion was taboo in their household. And she said, and then he handed me this French, this Bible written in French. In French. Calais said, these are his words, I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened it and chanced upon the Beatitudes. I read and read and read, now aloud with indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And suddenly the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that would understand me. I needed it so much, yet unaware, I had attempted to write my own in vain. I continued to read deeply into the night, mostly from the Gospels. And lo and behold, as I looked through them, the one of whom they spoke, the one who, the, the one who spoke and acted in them, became alive to me. Callier became a Christian. He went to seminary and became a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and then Princeton Theological Seminary. There's, I, have another, I have several other examples. I, I'm, 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 I think I'm going to skip them because I want to make sure I get finished. There's a very interesting um, individual, Dr. Mary Poplin, who was a college professor who teaches philosophy, learning theory, and worldviews. And she had a very similar experience to Callier. For years, she had pursued secular philosophies, particularly radical feminism and then New Age religion, but found them empty and wanting. And then she decided, I'm going to read the New Testament. For the first time. And instead of just reading it, she says, I'm going to write it out so I can really absorb it. She had the very same experience that Callier had. So again, the purpose of this series is to provide a very concise but well-documented argument that the Bible is legitimate and true. 
If you already regard it as God's written revelation, then hopefully it will strengthen that belief. If you're not so sure about the Bible or don't believe what it claims to be, this maybe can give you the ability to check it out and maybe learn something of the Bible you don't know. Maybe it'll even change your mind. But I believe that in the end, you'll see that the Bible is the most unique of all sacred texts. And it emerges as God's Word in print that has been incredibly well preserved for thousands of years. Yet it always remains fresh and relevant to our lives today here in the 20th century. I want to close by looking at one more person, a very credible person whose life was profoundly touched by the Bible. He's probably one of the most prominent scientists alive today. His name is Dr. Francis Collins. Very well educated. He graduated from the University of Virginia. He went to Yale where he got his Ph.D. in chemistry. And then I guess he liked going to school because he decided to go back to med school. And so he went to uh, the University of North Carolina and got his, his medical degree. He was a doctor. He had, I guess he had his Ph.D. and his M.D. And then he went and he taught at Yale and then at the University of Michigan. But he's most famous for what he did in 2003. He headed up the Human Genome Project where he led an international collaboration of 2,000 scientists in sequencing the human genome. And most recently, he was appointed by President Obama to be the director of the National Institute of Health, a very prominent scientist. And he had a very interesting spiritual journey. Uh, he had arrived at medical school as an atheist. And he shares very openly how in his third year, he was working in a hospital. And he was, he, one of his patients was an older woman, really, who kind of run out of options as far as treatment. And yet, they became friends. And she would talk to him on a daily basis about her faith and how she was prepared for what lay ahead. And he became quite fond of her. Until finally one day she says, Dr. Collins, you've been so good to me. You listened to me. You cared for me. You've listened to all that I've told you about my faith. But I've never asked you anything about your faith. What do you believe? Collins said, nobody had ever asked me that question. He says, not like that. Not in such a simple, sincere way. I realized that I didn't know the answer. I felt uneasy. I could feel my face flushing. I wanted to get out of there. The ice was cracking under my feet, and all of a sudden... By this simple question, everything in my life was a muddle. And he said a day or two later, I started thinking and wondering if I was an atheist because I had chosen this position on the basis of reason and evidence or because this is the answer that I really wanted for my life. That I didn't have to account to anybody but me. 
And he said, as a scientist, I had always insisted on collecting rigorous data before drawing a conclusion. And yet in matters of faith, I had never collected any data at all. I didn't know what I had rejected. So I decided that I should be a little better grounded in my atheism. I better find out what this is all about. So I challenged a patient of mine who was also a Methodist minister. And after listening to my questions and realizing that I was not dealing with a very full deck of information, he suggested I read the Gospel of John, which I did. He said, I found the scripture to be interesting, puzzling, and not at all what I had thought faith was about. And he said, then I began to read C.S. Lewis and realized there was a great depth of thinking and reason that could be applied to the question of God. You see, as he read Lewis, Lewis convinced him that reason and faith go hand in hand. They are not opposed to each other. He said, but this is something I realized. Faith has the added component of revelation. The Bible. Collins was just like C.S. Lewis. He had previously believed that Jesus and the stories of the Bible were nothing but myths. But as he studied the historical evidence, he was stunned at how well documented and how historically accurate the Bible was. And then, as he continued to study and research, he said he saw a surprising fidelity of the transmission of the manuscripts that were passed down over the centuries. And I have a a chapter on not only on history, but on ancient documents. Fascinating stuff. In fact, I'm meeting with a young man right now. He's 25 years old. He's absolutely clueless. I mean, he acknowledges this. And he says, I've been agnostic all my life. I gave him a copy of the manuscript and he said, I had no idea all this evidence that's out there. I was completely blind to it. Now what happened in Collins' life over time, based on the accumulation of all the evidence he observed, he concluded first that God exists, second that Jesus is the Son of God, and third that the Bible is the means God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. He also concluded that most of the religious skeptics he meets today are just like he was. That is to say, they would rather not think about it and they'd rather not even look at the evidence. That's why Dr. Dallas Willard, who I believe is probably one of the most brilliant and well thought of philosophers today, he headed up the philosophy department at the University of Southern California for years. He says this is a major problem with people who consider themselves to be skeptics. He finds that so many scholars that he encounters are guilty of what he calls irresponsible disbelief. That is, they choose to disbelieve in something without a commitment to coming to that disbelief by way of sound reasoning and the examination of evidence. Francis Collins will tell you today that he found the ultimate spiritual reality of life because he followed the dictum of Socrates to follow the truth wherever it leads you. And he was a seeker. 
And he says, I found the truth. And he says, it's the Bible for him is the foundation of that truth. And again, if you want to have a solid faith, you need to have a solid foundation. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We're particularly grateful that you didn't leave us out in the dark. That you stepped into the world as a man and revealed yourself to us. And that we have today a record. Not only a a record of history, but a record of your word that powerfully speaks into our lives. We're grateful for that. Lord, we're grateful for the community we live in. We're grateful for this wonderful church and its leadership. And we thank you that it is a church that is founded and built upon the Scriptures. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.